New York cites historical bigoted gun bans to defend its own laws in court. Plus, Alan Gottlieb of the Second Amendment Foundation explains his approach to the post-Bruin landscape. That and more on this episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I the devil run. I gave him poison just for fun. All right. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Weekly Reload Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gutowski. I'm also the founder of TheReload.com, where you can head over and sign up for our free Friday newsletter. It goes out every Friday. Uh, You'll get the latest and greatest gun news in the country. You can keep up to date with just that one newsletter each week to have a better understanding of what's going on with guns in America. And if you want to go a bit deeper, you can also check out one of our membership options. Become a member. That's that's the way we're able to operate. Our members are the only source of income we have at the reload, and that makes us uh, responsible to them and no one else. But uh, if you want to help support what we're doing, you want to help continue to publish sober, serious analysis of firearms news. Uh, that's the that's the best way you can do it. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of uh, pieces of reporting and analysis that you can't get anywhere else. You'll get this podcast a day early and you'll have the opportunity to appear on the show, which we have a member segment this week. So make sure you stay tuned to the end for that. But, um, you know, we've recently talked a great deal about the Supreme Court's Bruin um, opinion, its decision, this landmark gun carry decision that the court held, uh, you know, gave down earlier this this year. And we've talked to Charles Cook from National Review. We've talked to Andrew Willinger of uh, the Duke Firearms Law Center, got their perspectives on what this all means for the future of gun litigation in America. But today, we're going to talk to somebody who is actively involved in that kind of litigation. We have uh, Alan Gottlieb, who's the founder of the Second Amendment Foundation, which is involved in many suits across the country already. Uh, And uh, welcome to the show, Alan. Thanks for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. It's really great to be with you and your listeners. Thank you. Absolutely. And uh, can you just tell people a little bit about yourself and a little bit more about the Second Amendment Foundation? Well, I guess I've been involved in the gun rights battle since about 1972 on a full-time basis. So I have a lot of historical you know, view, view of this whole thing. And uh, when I got involved in it, I founded the Second Amendment Foundation back in 1974. And one of our purposes was to eventually get a case to the United States Supreme Court. And, you know, now we've had three big ones at the Supreme Court in total. Uh, and uh, I guess when we first started, it was a pipe dream, uh, but we did it. But we had to set the ground rules and the framework to ever get a case there. And back in 1972, uh, there really were no uh, cases that you can really point to uh, nationally that supported Second Amendment rights as an individual right. In fact, the only uh, case, Stephen, that was out there was an Oregon case based on the Oregon State Constitution uh, supporting the right to keep and bear arms. And it didn't even involve a gun. It involved a knife. And it was a criminal case that they prosecuted a person for having a knife. And the state Supreme Court yeah, ruled that, in fact, that knife was covered by the Oregon Constitution for the right to keep and bear arms. And that's really all that existed back there in 1972. And so we started holding legal. But things have. Yeah, go ahead. 
things have changed quite a lot since then, right? Yeah. So we started holding some legal scholars conferences, bringing uh, pro-gun attorneys and, and legal scholars together to determine what we had to do to ever be able to build a framework or a foundation to ever get a case to the United States Supreme Court. And it started a lot with like law review articles and, you know, uh, serious historical journals and public uh, popular culture publications. And we started getting articles written in place uh, to build a framework for this. And then one of our legal scholars conferences, we invited a lot of people on the other side to because we wanted them trying to pick apart where we were going and what our weaknesses were. And they didn't realize that what really was what it was for. And uh, they helped us out a lot telling us where our weaknesses were. One of the things that came out of one of these conferences, what was really important, was uh, the idea of, you know, you couldn't challenge all these laws if you didn't have the Second Amendment incorporated through the 14th Amendment, making it applicable to all 50 states. And we brought in the, uh, the dean of the University of Florida Law School, who went over a lot of stuff with us with incorporation. And pretty much we had to start out a suit that had to be against the federal government or a federal enclave to determine the individual right before we could ever even get a case to, 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 you know, to go to incorporate the Second Amendment through the 14th. So it started again, as most of your you know people probably know, uh, with the Heller decision in Washington D.C. because that was not a state, and we could win. And then that day we won that suit. The same day we filed the McDonald versus Chicago suit to knock out Chicago's gun ban and incorporate the Second Amendment through the Fourteenth, which then made all these other cases possible, including you know the Bruin case that went to the Supreme Court, challenging New York. Yes, yeah, so there's quite a lot of history there, um, and and you guys were involved all along the way, and of course you're still involved in gun litigation uh, after Bruin, you have, ha how many cases do you think you have going right now? Or, you know, uh, rough estimate. We have approximately 40 cases going on Second Amendment rights across the country right now. And that's about the number we had pre-Bruin. Uh, and some of those we, we've already sort of won or taken off the board. And, and now we've got new cases coming up on the board. So we're staying around that 40 number, which is unbelievably amazing. You know, if we were a major national law firm, had 40 active court cases going on at one time you know, that were actually being litigated, that would be an awful lot to keep track of. And we're just a nonprofit organization that has 40 cases going on. So it's, it's, it's quite a challenge. Yes. Yes, I imagine. Um, and, and so what are, um, <clears throat> what should, well, I just give us straight away your reaction to Broom. What do you think the impact of that holding is going to be on gun litigation from this point out. Well, it's a major impact, not just on gun litigation, but on gun legislation as well, because we're having a reaction from the other side passing new laws. But basically, the important thing about not only turning overturning the New York, you know, so-called ban on carry, which is basically what it was, uh, it got rid of the so-called two-tier system on how federal courts determine Second Amendment rights. And, and basically said that you have to go with what the text and history of the Constitution is to determine your, uh, your, your verdicts uh, in, in defining Second Amendment litigation. And this system where it allows you know, governments to come in, government you know, states to come in and argue, well, it doesn't matter what the Constitution, the Constitution says. We have to pass these laws and they have to be you know, upheld by the courts because we have a, a, a crime crisis in our country. It's, you know, we have uh, all, all these, you know, Crimes being committed, and we have to, you know, stop it. This is the only way we can stop it. Well, now they can't argue, you know, social benefits or whatever it might be. They've got to go look at right what the Constitution actually says and, and why it says it. Uh, and that's really, really important because because a lot of times they trip us up with the anti-gun judges. Like it doesn't matter what the Constitution says. There's a need to ban guns, uh, and so you know that overrules, you know, what the Second Amendment says. 
that's no longer the case. And that's very important for us. Yeah, certainly. Although, uh, I mean, the reaction thus far in places like California and New York have been uh, pretty fascinating to watch because they're certainly not passing gun restrictions uh, with that framework in mind that you just mentioned there, right? No, I, I think they're doing this really emotionally. Uh, and, and what's happening is, uh, let me back it up just a hair. You have some places like, say, Maryland, uh, that, you know, by, by order of the governor have changed how they can give out their permits. You've got even in California, the attorney general now said, you know, that they, they, they pretty much have to be shall issue, not discretionary the way they were, you know, based on the California law. Uh, and you've got some other places that, that have, you know, are, are basically about they haven't changed the laws necessarily, but they talk about they won't be enforced the same way they were. Uh, so we've already seen some, some motion from the legal side of the anti-gun states where some of them realize they're in trouble uh, and they don't want to have to relitigate it. Uh, but then you've got, like you mentioned, New York, California, where they passed a whole bunch of new laws as well, uh, particularly California, which is I think it's now something like nine laws they've passed roughly that you know to attack gun rights, with more on the drawing board and some sitting on the governor's desk to sign into so law. So much you've already challenged so we as well. well. We'll get to that later. But yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a whole lot to challenge. I view this whole thing now in post Bruin that I'm looking at things in like three or four tiers of of, of what we're going to be looking at. One because of Bruin. Uh, we have, you know, the, the key states we're looking at are like New York, Maryland, Massachusetts, California, New Jersey, and Hawaii, which had a lot of restrictive laws on the books. And then California, of course, with all their new proposed legislation, uh, again, even though the attorney general gave out a letter to law enforcement that they can't enforce some of the laws the way they're enforcing them. Uh, and even the New, York, New Jersey attorney general did the same thing that they can't enforce some of the laws the way they were enforcing them. Uh, and, and in New York, they've sort of said that on the legal side of it, you know, to, to the law enforcement. Uh, but then they, you know, passing all kinds of new legislation and redefining things in New York. Our two biggest problems right now really are New York, California, and New Jersey, just a step behind them. That's my tier one, the tier one area. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's only part of tier one, I guess, because New York, as an example, they're trying to redefine sensitive uh, places, which is going to be litigation, forthcoming litigation on the, on the tier one side, you know, like making t- Times Square and blocks around it, uh, a, you know, a gun-free zone, so to speak, where you can't, you know, ca- carry a firearm even if you're licensed to do so. So now we have to give you the license, but we, we're saying you, you can't carry the gun in, in these places. And of course, what they'd like to do is make the whole city in New York a sensitive place and, and make the permit system like non-existent anyway. Uh, and they've also like flipped the uh, the the usual standard for private property on its head. In every other state, basically, you have to uh, post if you don't want somebody to carry into your place of business. Um, you have to post a sign that says no guns. Uh, whereas New York is now doing the is trying to flip it the opposite way and saying you can't carry unless the the store has posted uh, that they allow it, uh, which is a monumental shift uh, that, that would have a pretty massive impact on uh, where people can actually legally carry guns. Yeah, right? and of course, if it, if it and of course that intact. puts the, the burden on the store owner shopkeeper to post it. And, uh, you know, if they don't get around to it, you just don't get to carry your firearm. Uh, it's almost like a negative checkoff system. And, uh, and historically, that doesn't hold up very well in the courts. So uh, I'm I'm not sure they're going to get away get away with that. Uh, we also have uh, what we're looking at in our tier one is uh, 
I guess, non-resident carry. A lot of states still, you know, uh, even complying with Bruin, so to speak, with their current laws, uh, don't want non-residents to be able allowed to carry. So we're looking at a lot of non-resident suits now because your right to carry a firearm shouldn't stop at your state border. Uh, and the Bruin decision, I think, helps us out a whole lot in those areas as well. Uh, we're also looking at abusive licensing systems, uh, some that existed before and some that are going to be coming in place of some of these new laws. But, you know, putting all kinds of requirements, making it next to impossible uh, to go through the system, you know, excessive fees, excessive time constraints, discrimination because of your political views. I mean, we're now looking at places like New York. They're talking about how they want to look at your uh, you know, Facebook post before they say you have good character to be able to, you know, uh, apply for the permit and get it. Uh, and we're looking at that happening federally as well, uh, with a lot of members of Congress pushing in that direction. So there's a whole lot of areas there as well. And then we're looking at disclosure uh, of you know, privacy rights, uh, where a lot of the states are now looking at, well, okay, you can have the permit, but we're going to make it public so that every newspaper can put your name in there saying you own and carry a firearm so we can you know, bring pressure against you, uh, things of that nature. Uh, and then, of course, the two big ones are you know, so-called semi-automatic firearms that they like to call assault weapons, restrictions on those, and large capacity magazines. Uh, so we're in court on those right now. When we had filed pre-Bruin, knowing we were going to win Bruin, we really felt that that was a winning case with challenging Maryland's assault weapon ban, uh, which then, of course, got sort of overturned and remanded back down for retrial you know, you know, by the U.S. Supreme Court uh, as part of their Bruin decision or right after the decision. Right. Uh, and, and Maryland now, uh, we're looking to, to overturn the Maryland semi-automatic ban, which will then affect a number of other states as well. So we're kind of excited in those areas. And then, of course, we have a lot of magazine ban litigation that was filed pre-Bruin as well, uh, knowing that we were going to win. Uh, and uh, we have like here in Washington state, my home state, which, which banned magazines that hold more than 10 rounds. You know, the, the sale, you keep the ones you had, but no, no new sale or manufacturer of those. Uh, you know, they thought that Washington state thought that was going to be a slam dunk win. And then post Bruin, now they're backtracking about how much harder it's going to be for them to win the case. And they're whining and crying a whole lot. So those are sort of my tier one category of cases. And then we're looking. And then so how do you how do you decide? What's in tier one and what's in, you know, tier two? Well, I think by uh, the tier one cases, the ones we think we have the better chances of winning no matter what. Uh, and the tier two ones are like a hair, hair below those. So we're sort of doing it, you know, where we think we can actually accomplish the mission and, and, and win for Second Amendment rights. You know, our slogan has been winning, winning Second Amendment rights one lawsuit at a time. Uh, and uh, we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, moving in that direction. And Bruin just makes it easier for us. And so what are just one or two examples of tier two? Well, tier two, you know, excessive training regulations where in order to get this permit, they're going to make you, you know, go, go through unbelievable amounts of training. And look, you have some places now like, like, like New York City could be an example where they're going to make you go through a lot of training, but there aren't a whole lot of gun ranges. And the training, you know, you're looking at, you know, 15 hours or so, you know, with, and, and on range training. There aren't enough ranges in New York to be able, in New York City, to be able to accommodate that. So by putting a lot of range training in and knowing there's no place to get the training, uh, the, you know, they're, they're able to thwart your Second Amendment rights. We had this situation in Chicago when we won the McDonald's suit at the Supreme Court and knocked out the gun ban in Chicago. The city of Chicago said you had to have range training to, to get the permit to own a firearm in your own home, except they banned gun ranges in Chicago. And so we filed the Azil, Azil 1, I call it, case and knocked out the ban on, uh, on ranges in Chicago. And so then they came back and Chicago passed, okay, you can have ranges, but the ranges have to be set up certain ways and, and made it in a way that was impossible to build out a range anyway. 
we filed again in L2 and we knocked out that in Chicago as well. So this is kind of what we're looking at. The anti-gunners aren't going to give up. They're going to keep you know pushing any way they can to make it hard and restrict gun rights. Uh, and so we're looking at those kind of cases. Uh, and we've already had success before, but uh, I, I think we're going to win on those. And then uh, the 18 to 20 year old, you know, where they don't want to give permits to people to either own or carry a firearm if you're, if you're a young adult. Uh, we have a lot of those cases pre-filed, pre-Bruin uh, already, and we're looking at filing some more of those. And then we're looking at, you know, a lot of states where they can let you carry concealed, but they won't let you carry open at all. Uh, we, we now think there's an opening there that at least, you know, uh, they, they'd have to let you have a permit to carry openly. They can't just ban it either. Uh, storage laws. Uh, a lot of a lot of places of, uh, are have passed before. We've already won on some of these cases, but we're seeing a, a pushback against this. So, okay, you can now own this gun, but you have to store it, you know, carry it in certain ways and make it useless. Uh, and we're looking at that. Uh, we're looking at on, uh, again range restrictions by various townships and, and cities, where okay, you can have gun ranges, uh, but you know they're non-usable, so to speak, or we make it next impossible to build them. Uh, and, and then the banning on self-made firearms, uh, you know, it's been a long American tradition that you can make your own firearm in your own home. Uh, and we're getting an awful lot of pushback now post-Bruin uh, in, in that area where more and more places are, are, are passing laws saying you can't, you know, make your own firearm. And we're also seeing these what they call anti-arsenal laws, you know, where, uh, you know, you can only have so much ammunition or own only so many guns. And we're going to li li limit the amount of, 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 you know, guns or ammunition you can have. And, uh, you know, as a result, uh, that's our feeling of infringement of Second Amendment rights. And it's tier two because it's new ground to cover. But Bruin, again, helps us out that way as well. And then we've got some tier three stuff, too, you know, dealing with the uh, uh, FFLs, licensing of FFLs and how FFLs get treated. Uh, you know, we're looking at just regulation of self-made firearms where they'll let you have it, but they, they regulate it in crazy ways. Uh the handgun rosters where a lot of handguns can't be sold in some states. We've had some suits in the past we've both, you know, uh, that are still being litigated and some we've lost, which now I think come back where have more power under Bruin to bring those cases back. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, again, uh, penalizing uh, firearms owners uh, to be able to get, get information from the government on how they're regulating your guns or, or their behind the scenes anti-gun activities. Uh, they're trying to protect that so we can't sue to get that kind of information. Uh, and likewise, again, trying to make a lot of gun owner information public to the public uh, so that, you know, your privacy rights are really violated. And there's, there's a red flag laws is another area in our tier three, uh, which don't provide due process uh, in, in their procedures. So those are our tier threes. And I'm looking at some tier four stuff coming up now that's new stuff that we haven't even thought of that the other side is coming up with. It's all new laws to, you know, to infringe on Second Amendment rights. Uh, hmm. And so, like what? well, like we had in California just now, we just filed suit against that one. Uh, so it was tier four, but we've already filed it where any advertising or any mention of guns that might entice minors to be interested in firearms is now illegal. And you can go to jail or be fined for, for it, which kills all youth sports, shooting, safety training. Uh, and it doesn't allow like the Second Amendment Foundation to, uh, you know, even talk about gun rights with, to young adults because uh, might, they might want to then own a firearm. Uh, and so we're really upset about that. And likewise, that particular law, while it bans the firearms industry from, you know, putting out information that reaches minors, it doesn't do that to the anti-gun people. So they can put out everything about how guns are evil and kids should, should never own a gun when they grow up. That's okay in California, but to advocate that, you know, you should be have the right to own a gun. That's another story. Right. Yeah. We, we just did a profile of uh, one of the 
youth shooters, Lola Fitzgerald, who's affected by that law because of the sort of what appear to be maybe unintended consequences depends on who you ask in California, whether they intended for this to to shut down youth shooting sports there or not. Uh, the, you know, certainly the governor argues that uh, that uh, that's too broad a reading well, of the bill. Like some, in, some inside baseball for you in California. Uh, the the Attorney General's Office, the Justice Department of California, recognizes they have some problems with that law. And so they've reached out to our attorneys to uh, say that, look, we're willing to amend it a little bit. Uh, and uh, so because we didn't really, really, it wasn't our intent to, it wasn't the legislature's intent to not allow safety training or this or that. So we want, we want to amend part of it. And so if we amend it, will you drop your suit? But it still doesn't take away 90% of what's there that shouldn't be there anyway. So we told them, no, we're not amending our suit. You're going to have to litigate it. You wrote it this way. It's anti-Second Amendment rights. It's anti-First Amendment rights. And we're staying in court with this. Interesting. That, that is interesting. I mean, uh, I know CNN's Jake Tapper had had reported that uh, one of his sources close to the governor said that they were planning to amend the law legislatively. Uh, we haven't seen anything publicly about that yet. Um, it's interesting that the attorney general's office has apparently reached out to you guys uh, along the same lines. But yeah, I would imagine that even if they put in some sort of exception for youth shooting sports to continue to operate, uh, you know, leagues to continue to operate that you, you, know, you guys wouldn't necessarily be satisfied with leaving right. the rest of it in place. Right. They, they've showed us your proposed language, which solves a little bit of the problem, but, but, but not 90% of the problem. Uh, and that, uh, but the thing is, they're admitting the, the AG's office privately submitted to us. They, they got some problems. And they need to fix something. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think that much is probably obvious to nearly anyone who doesn't just want to ban all guns. Um, because, I mean, skeet shooting is an Olympic sport, as as the uh, story that, uh, that we, we wrote uh, references, where we're actually the top American, uh, one of the top American athletes of all time is, is uh, Kim Rohde, who won six consecutive medals or she medaled in six consecutive games which is uh, yeah she won a lot more medals summer. than that but yes yes yeah, well she's won six medals but she's won them in six uh, she won three golds uh two silvers and a or two bronzes and a silver but she won them over the course of six games which is an incredible feat incredible uh, obviously most athletes only participate in maybe three if they're lucky you know, games that they don't because the games are obviously four years apart from each other. So it's not it's not uh, usual to be that to have that kind of longevity. And, and if you don't start training at a young age, you're never going to you're never going to get to that kind of a peak. And right. California law really knocks a lot of that out right now. Yes. And that's that's the problem for uh, somebody like 16 year old Lola Fitzgerald, who wants to be like Kim Rohde and who has won a number of titles uh, in California and elsewhere but is now effectively cut off from the, her sport altogether uh, because of this law. But, uh, but yeah, so you guys are obviously challenging that alongside uh, a couple of other gun rights groups in the state. And, um, and it is interesting to see that as part of the reaction to Bruin. Um, like you said, I mean, so you suspect as I, I mean, honestly, I, I would suspect that a lot of these very uh, broad laws that they've passed in the wake of, Bruin are not going to survive scrutiny, but I think the that idea relies on uh, this assumption that the Supreme Court is going to step in in these cases if, say, the Ninth Circuit uh, finds a way to uphold 
this youth advertising ban, for instance, or the the bounty law that they've passed, or any number of the new restrictions on gun carry that have been passed in in California, uh, like the Supreme Court's going to have to actually do something for that to matter, right? Well, if it, if it gets that far, yeah, uh, you know, I, I think. Well, do you expect? Are- I guess one interesting thing is, like, uh, long, for a long time, we've expected that lower courts like the Ninth Circuit are going to find ways to uphold these laws. Do you think that still should be the expectation after Bruin or what do you think there? Well, no doubt in some cases, the Ninth Circuit is not going to become gun friendly and, you know, they're uh, going to try to uh, pardon the pun, stick to their you know guns or stick to their anti-guns. But in a lot of these cases, the Ninth Circuit has pretty been, well been put on notice and I think a lot of these cases now, the Ninth Circuit's going to have a harder time figuring out ways to get around the Supreme Court like they were able to do, you know, after after Heller. Uh, now it's 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 going to be a different ball game. So do I expect to see some pushback there? Yeah, but they're not going to be on as uh, on as good a ground as they were, and they know it, and they don't really want to be constantly overturned by the Supreme Court either. So it's going to be interesting to see. The battle is still going to range range in the courts. Uh, but I think we're in a much, much better position to win these. And you're going to get other circuits that are going to be totally ruling in our favor. And so the circuit splits are going to be there. And the Ninth Circuit knows that as well. So when you have other circuits ruling on these same kind of cases, because we've planted these kind of cases all across the country in various circuits, when you get other circuits ruling in our favor and then the Ninth Circuit tries to rule against us, it puts them in a little you know, worse light, so to speak. Uh, so uh, we're on the offensive now, and the other side knows it. Interesting. Uh- so one one part I'm in, I want to hear from you. One one uh, thing I, I'm interested in, and, and one thing that that uh, you know I've talked with some of the other people about, but the the weaknesses of the Bruin standard, like what what do you what do you think they are? I mean, I, certainly we've seen arguments that well, it all really depends on how far out you uh, take this view of historical uh, analog, right? Uh, you know. Well, obviously, our how closely now, do they have to be related yeah. before they're constitutional? Yeah. I guess. Well, obviously, our opponents now are going to try to distort the historical, you know, standards uh, because the, you know that's all they can really argue now, and so they're going to have to, you know, try, try to find ways to do that. Uh, they're on much weaker ground than they were before, and the Supreme Court, you know, in Heller and McDonald, and now in Bruin, pretty much talk about a lot of the historical standards, and you know, and so I'm not so concerned that that we're going to lose on that. Uh, but the other side is going to surely try to manipulate it. There's no doubt about it. And the other thing that I think they're going to try to manipulate a whole lot is, is that obviously both in the Heller decision and the Bruin decision, you know, you know, refer- reference as well, that, you know, that, that there are some laws in sensitive places that they can pass to restrict carrying of firearms in sensitive places. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to try again, define the whole country as a sensitive place. Uh, and when they try to go overreach on that, I think we're going to be, you know, going to be in good shape to win again. But there are some sensitive places that you're not you're not going to be able to carry firearms. And uh, and that's been the case before. And I think that's not we're not going to get to overturn that in Bruin. Bruin didn't go that far in that area. Uh, but again, it's a monumental win for us, period. And the other side knows it. And, you know, they're freaking out over it, quite frankly. But the more they freak out over it, the more they try to pass bad laws that don't have a past constitutional muster and don't make sense. 
and I'm, I, I, I feel we're getting more and more in the driver's seat with this every day. And so what we started back in, you know, in, in 1972 with the Second Amendment Foundation and these legal scholars conferences and getting things published in law review articles, et cetera, has really paid off in spades. But it's taken a significant number of decades to get to where we are. Yeah, that's certainly true. Uh, but so you you don't look at something like, for instance, the uh, an assault weapons ban case. It seems clear that they're probably going to argue that, um, you know, because there's historical tradition of regulating dangerous and unusual firearms, that that applies to, you know, AR-15s and AK-47s. Um, you don't think that's or, uh, you know, or the sensitive places that we can extend these sensitive places to Times Square because Times Square is has these unique set of circumstances uh, that make it um, you know, different from your regular public area. Um, you're not yeah, they, concerned that those are going to hold up in court, those sorts of arguments. Well, uh, on, on the banning of you know, semi-automatic so-called assault weapons, I think we're going to win. The same thing on, 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 you know, on, on magazine capacity, I think we're going to win. Because those things aren't unusual and they're not overly dangerous. They, they, they can't win on that. And making those particular arguments, again, isn't going to hold up very well. Because historically, uh, I mean, it, it, that, that doesn't make any It really doesn't make any sense historically. And again, bringing in that something is dangerous or, 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 or whatever isn't going to sell anymore because that Supreme Court said you got to look at the history and text of the Second Amendment. Uh, and and that, that's what's going to that, that's the tr- tripping point for them. And that's where they're going to fall on their faces. Okay, so you're not, you're not they, they, will, even, they will argue it. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. it, but I don't think they're going to win on it. You know, if they right. try to say something like, you know, uh, at certain times because of certain activities, uh, carrying guns in Times Square may not be okay. You know, like maybe maybe say like New Year's Eve itself. Uh, but to say, you know, 24-7, you know, every day of the year, you can't carry a gun, not just in Times Square, but with an X number of block radius around it, that isn't going to work. Okay, so you're not, a, you're not as concerned about those sorts of arguments, even though you do expect them to be made in court. What is yeah. it that you're concerned about then? Uh, like uh, maybe legal minimization where they try to um, rule that, you know, for instance, the, this laws uh, unconstitutional as applied, but not, but not make a determination on the constitutionality of the law overall. Like what, uh, these sorts of things. Like, there's other ways that you can delay at least. Oh yeah. Um, certain decisions. Are you are you concerned about those sorts of tactics? Well, I think we're going to see things like uh, you know uh, some anti-gun judges in the lower courts. Uh, you know. Timelines for your to hear your case, you know, they can stretch things out so it takes years to you know to get your case heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are all kinds of things the other side's going to do because they're evil. I mean, and they're going to misuse the system any chance they they get to do it. Uh, but I feel really good about holding them accountable for it, and eventually, over time, uh, day by day, instead of them chipping away at our rights, we're gonna, we're going to put the rights back together again. Hmm. And you think they're. You think they're evil, not just misguided or have a different opinion than you? I think in this case, we've, things are so polarized that it's not so much misguided. Uh, I think it's more evil, especially when you get, you know, politicians and, and you know, people, even, even you know, lawyers and judges talking about how, uh, well, we know this doesn't solve the problem, but we don't care. When they admit that, at that point, they're evil. Hmm. Interesting. I mean, I, that's obviously a very, very harsh take on it, but... Um, but so, uh, what do you think the ultimate outcome is going to be from, from in this post Bruin landscape? Like, uh, I mean, you seem very confident that you're going to have a lot of success here with these cases. 
um, and, and that there isn't really a lot of counter argument that's going to succeed in court here. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm confident over time there's going to be a setback here, a setback there. You know, going to have to then appeal something. Uh, and eventually, like you referenced earlier, something might have to go back to the U.S. Supreme Court where they're going to have to, you know, make another decision in our favor. Uh, but I feel good about it. Uh, I wish things would happen faster. The legal system is slow. Uh, you know, the other side passes a law that infringes on our rights, you know, and they sign it into law and it's there in a day, so to speak. Uh, but you challenge it in court and it takes years. So my, my biggest frustration is how, to, how much time it's going to take to fully restore Second Amendment rights in, in the United States. But we're moving in the right direction every day. And that makes me feel back, feel good. Hmm. OK. And um, so can you just give me um, which of the cases, uh, like talk a little bit more about that timeline. What, what do you think we're likely to see um, come to fruition first, like the. Uh, for instance, these four cases that got uh, remanded, which of those do you expect to actually have like tangible results in the fastest? You know, there's an assault weapons ban case in Maryland that you referenced. There was a gun carry case out of Hawaii. There's one uh, out of what, California, right? Where are these? What what should people expect to see next? Like the next big development in gun litigation. Well, I think anything in the Ninth Circuit, which covers California and Hawaii, is going to move slowly. Uh, so I'm not so sure uh, how quickly those are going to get resolved. And I'm saying that because even if we win at the, you know, at the trial court level or at the appeals court level, you still have the possibilities of in bonk uh, in the Ninth Circuit. And so I think things in the Ninth Circuit are going to, to, to until it's fully resolved in the Ninth Circuit, it's going to take the longest probably. Uh, but the Maryland assault and ban case, I think, is, is going to move pretty quickly at this point. Uh, it's 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 already, uh, you know, back in the trial court uh, and, and moving forward already. Uh, and so I feel good about that. And we got sent back to the trial court with pretty good instructions from the appeals court. Uh, so I, I feel that that one's going to move fairly quickly. Uh, but things in California and New York are going to tend to move slower. Uh, in other states, they'll move faster. Uh, but we're definitely moving and we're moving in the right direction. So it's hard to predict, you know, if you look at the Heller case, I think that took, I don't know, six, seven years or something uh, to get to the Supreme Court and, and, and get that ruling. Uh, and the McDonald case moved a lot quicker. I think that may have been, you know, two and a half or three years to, to, to get it fully done. Uh, but these cases take a long time. And a lot of us gun rights activists get impatient. And we want our rights restored immediately. And unfortunately, that's the frustration we, we, we have. And, and of course, when these battles drag out, they cost us more money. Uh, and uh, it's raising dollars to do it. We don't have the billionaires like the other side has, the Michael Bloomberg's and the George Soros's you know, to help support it. So we have to raise our dollars in you know, $10, $15 increments, so to speak. Uh, and it, take, it takes a lot more time to do it. So the other side's going to try to drag it out, especially when they know that they're right now they're on the losing side of things. They'd probably like to drag it out until maybe the Supreme Court changes its makeup uh, and they can get more, more anti-gun judges right. on the Supreme Court. Until that happens, I think they're going to try and drag things out. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a logical approach, given what you've talked about here, um, that, the, the, uh, that a lot of these states are likely to take. But, uh, I mean, how long do you, do you think the court will wait until it takes another gun case. I mean, that's, it feels like that's a really big question to me. Um, 
I mean, obviously you seem very confident in the, you know, the outcome at the lower courts is going to be different this time around after Bruin, but uh, I mean, I would still feel like the Supreme Court actually stepping in is going to be necessary at some point. Do you think sure. it's going to take 14 years for them to issue another, you know, significant update to Second Amendment jurisprudence? I don't think it's going to take that long. Uh, you know, we have several judges on the Supreme Court that uh, at this point want to hear Second Amendment cases. So. Uh, we have people in the court, you know, pushing for it. Mm. Uh, again, you need four justices to hear a case and you need five to win it. Uh, so it's a matter of getting four justices to hear it. Right now, I think we have four justices that would be willing to hear a number of gun rights cases. So it's a matter of getting through the court system and getting one there. And of course, you have to get one there that, this, that they feel comfortable with. Uh, and I think, quite frankly, like the Americans, uh, the Maryland assaultment ban, would be one they'd feel comfortable with because it's a very strict ban on how they define what assault weapons are. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense. I, I think a case like that, the court would take. I think, you know, something even at this juncture on the 18 to 20 year old, uh, young adult owning firearms, uh, at this point, that's something the court would probably be interested in taking. Uh, and then, you know, we've got other cases that I, I think we're going to win on that don't even have to get to the Supreme Court. We just followed, a, you know, one in California, uh, on their gun show ban on public property. And we already won a case in California federal court on that in, uh, against the Del Mar, Del Mar Fairgrounds in San Diego. Uh, and they were so upset that we won that case. Uh, and, and you know that what happened is they went legislative wise and passed laws law statewide in California that, that basically, uh, and I think they got a round of being cute, but you know, by too far by half, uh, but they banned it, you know, so to speak on any any public property anywhere in the state of California. What they did was instead of actually banning gun shows directly, they just banned the gun sale of any guns or ammunition. So you really can't have a gun show because there's no way anybody's going to come to it if you can't buy or sell guns, which is obviously you know a legal thing to do. Uh, and so that they, they're being cute, they think they got around it because they didn't really ban the show itself. They just banned all the activity that takes place at the gun show. Yes, I, I imagine you'll be facing a lot of those sort of derivative uh Restriction well, we just, we just filed suit against the state of California and Orange County on that one who passed an ordinance mm -hmm. banning it in Orange County. And the two other counties in California that have also similarly passed laws like that. So we'll be filing two other federal lawsuits in two other jurisdictions in the state of California very shortly as well. Well, we'll be keeping on top of those suits and your other suits because uh, you guys are very prolific, as, um, as we described here on this episode. You certainly have a lot of cases going. A lot of them end up being quite important. So. We will, we will most certainly keep following them, and we appreciate you coming on. Where can people find out more about the Second Amendment Foundation if they want to? Easiest places on the internet, saf.org, saf.org, samalphafrank.org. All right, wonderful. Well, we'll have to have you on again in the future to give us an update on how some of these cases actually played out uh, in practice. So, It'd be my pleasure. And thanks yeah. for everything you guys do at the reload. I read it all the time and, and uh, more people should because it's a place to get a lot. Of, sometimes I find things out first by reading your stuff. Thank you. I appreciate that. It's a great endorsement. Thank you so much. Um, and uh, we will head over to our new segment now. Thank you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the weekly news update. I'm contributing writer Jake Fogelman, joined as always by the Reload founder, Stephen Gutowski. How are you this week, Steve? I'm doing well. How are you, Jake? I'm doing all right. Um, 
You had a, an interesting story this week that we're going to be talking about here. The state of New York uh, in a court filing made an interesting argument for why its new post-Bruin concealed carry law should be upheld. If you want to tell us a little bit more about what they put in that court filing. Yeah, so this relates to New York's good moral character clause, which allows officials to deny applicants based on subjective concerns about their moral character, right? You could perhaps see why that um, might be problematic to some people, but uh, it's being challenged in court by Gun Owners of America is the main gun group behind this one. But yeah, New York filed a a brief which defended this clause by um, citing historical bans on the uh, ownership of guns by uh, Native Americans and Catholics. Um, they said that that was relevantly similar to their good moral character clause. Uh, and the, the reasoning they used is that uh, those bans were against uh, people considered to be d dangerous or disloyal to uh, either the United States or England, because these laws uh, went, a lot of them are actually from the 17th century, not, not from the founding era, although obviously some of the Native American bands did continue on into the, uh, into the early days of the American Republic. But uh, the, the idea is that these were supposed to be gen, you know, examples of general bans against dangerous people owning guns. And so therefore, um, New York can subjectively uh, ban people from carrying guns based on, or I suppose uh, they also have pistol purchase permits there um, right. from owning them. If, if they're considered to be, um, suspect or dangerous, potentially dangerous. And, and so, uh, yeah, obviously that caused a bit of a stir because, well, New York is saying that their modern regulation is relevantly similar to these racist, uh, bigoted gun bans of the past. And, uh, yeah, don't, uh, that, that didn't impress a lot of people. Uh, yeah. and, uh, so, It'll be interesting to see what the court does with with this argument. No, I think that's right. Uh, and just for context, for people who I'm sure many of our listeners do know, but they didn't just pull this out of nowhere. This is the court attempting to use the new Bruin test that was established by the Supreme Court, which said that no longer can you justify gun regulations on an interesting balancing interest balancing scale, where it's is it you know working towards the goal of improving public safety. The court said, no, you can't do that. You have to decide, is it, does the law implicate the text of the second amendment? And if it does, is there a sufficient historical analog to this law that would uh, allow us to uphold it under the second amendment? So this is them, as you said, trying to find a relevant historical analog. Uh, but as you also pointed out, I'm not sure that drawing on laws that are explicitly racist is going to buy them much favor with the courts. Yeah, you know, I did a members piece that looked at uh, or that asked a bunch of experts what they thought about this. And I asked, you know, four, four or five different constitutional law experts from different sides of the aisle. Uh, you know, we had Robert Leiter from George Mason University, uh, Andrew Winkler from uh, UCLA, uh, Eric Rubin from SMU, 
you know, uh, Andrew uh, Willinger from Duke and um, Josh Blackman uh, from uh, Southern Texas, who who also, you know, the, basically they didn't think this was going to actually work in court. Um, you know, like you said, they they noted that this this is an outgrowth of Bruin. This is this is New York trying to respond to Bruin, trying to come up with historical analogs for their laws. And and um, well, I mean, I think as uh, Leiter put it there, they just didn't have they don't have many to point to. Uh, and so they're using this uh, e even, you know, th this argument about these uh, racist and bigoted gun bans being uh, an example of uh, de depriving dangerous people uh, their gun rights. That that argument has been around. Uh, even uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett made this argument in or at least cited it in uh, Cantor, which was about a nonviolent felon. She used it to try try and say that, uh, you know, nonviolent non non felons, sorry, um, shouldn't be prohibited from owning guns because only dangerous people should. And she used this, this uh, example to uh, explain why dangerous pe people considered to be dangerous were, were uh, you know, that's a historical tradition of denying them gun rights, but I mean, uh, it's not a very solid foundation right. if that's the, that's your argument for, uh, you know, at least from my perspective but uh taking that argument and then trying to apply it to you know this subjective denial of rights to you know anyone basically considered uh, for any reason to be or for for many different reasons to be a threat i mean uh, lighter talks about new york city at one point was trying to deny permits to people who had too many speeding tickets, you know, too many, too many traffic violations. And so really not, uh, he, he doesn't think that it's, it's uh, a close connection. And none of these experts seem to think that this was going to be a winning argument in court. Although they did think uh, that perhaps this law or some other subjective discretionary standard for permit issuing might survive uh, based on other uh, fact factors like, um, you know, there, there are some of these discretionary rules in uh, some shall issue states that, uh, you know, go back a little bit further and, and uh, the court didn't find issue with in Bruin directly, although obviously <clears throat> the court wasn't uh, specifically deciding that that issue in Bruin. So it's hard. I, I don't know if they how much the court is going to allow discretionary <clears throat> subjective standards to um, remain in uh, the gun carry permit application process because they seem pretty adamant that they don't want uh, that that the, this right can't be limited by subjective judgments. Yeah, no, and that's what I think is interesting about this particular argument because, as you pointed out, there are other states with similar clauses. Some of them almost identical to this good moral character requirement. I know Massachusetts kept theirs in their carry permit law. I believe California still has one in their relevant statute, and they're also working on their own sort of omnibus restricted post-Bruin yeah. carry bill. Um, and you can you can believe that gun rights advocates are going to challenge those laws as well at some point. And sure. it'll be interesting to see if governments in those states take up this same line of argument when they're trying to look for historical analogs to uphold that, because you know they're going to fight to defend those requirements.
I think that if your only historical analog are these explicitly racist or bigoted gun bans, then yeah, you know, maybe your law is not that great <laughs> to begin with. I don't know. Like, you know, you'd think you could find other, now to be fair, New York did pull out a couple of other arguments. That's what makes this even more bizarre to me personally. Now I'm not a constitutional law expert, like some of these people that we, we've talked to for that members piece, but uh, I mean, you know, New York pulled out a couple of other p- perhaps also perilous arguments, but, uh, you know, they, they pointed to some militia laws that let um, people be disarmed if they allowed, you know, officials to disarm people if if they suspected that person was disloyal to the United States or um, they, they specifically cited um, Shays Rebellion and how. People who participated in Shays Rebellion, which again is, was a active rebellion against the government, um, uh, they weren't al- allowed to <clears throat> uh, have their arms. They, they had their firearms taken away for three years until they swore an oath of allegiance. And a lot of these things resulted in like swearing an oath of, of allegiance or paying a very small fine, uh, which is also obviously pretty different from what New York's law does, which is just deny people the, their rights indefinitely um without any recourse uh, but either way like they found some other analog they could at least point to and i don't know why they didn't just go with the with that one probably i guess because barrett had mentioned this particular line of reasoning at one point in in her uh dissent but boy it's just not, not a super compelling one i, I don't think no, yeah, and there's no reading between the lines with this. This is these are as you pointed out, these are laws that are overtly racist. They they in explicit terms identify disfavored ethnic groups to disarm. So it's not like one of these things where it's like, oh, it had disproportionate effects on certain groups. No, these were overtly targeted at certain groups. So it's yeah, as you said, it's kind of a bold strategy to cite that favorably right. to uphold your law. And, you know, a lot these, these modern regulations that New York has in place, including the good moral character clause, uh, which, you know, again, it's not hard to see how that can be used by a bigoted official to sure. discriminate against people. And, and frankly, as we saw with some of the briefs in Bruin uh, from public defenders in New York, uh, these laws are generally used in, in the modern day. In in a manner that's fairly discriminatory, it's it's applied mostly to young black men. Uh, they're the people who are being prosecuted under these laws, uh, for the most part, much more uh, disproportionately uh, compared to their population, right? Right. Uh, their their percentage of the population, and so um, while our the, while these modern laws aren't explicitly about barring black people or Indian Native Americans or or Catholics from running guns, they do have discriminatory effects, or at least uh, effects that are applied disproportionately to certain racial groups. So, uh, you know, it's a it's an especially bad look to go and s- take a law that has been criticized for its disparate impacts on on different minority groups, and then justify its existence by pointing to explicitly racist laws from the past you know it like yeah that's a good point it's pretty pretty remarkable you know it'd be kind of like if uh um you tried to justify 
some of the, you know, like a voter ID law by pointing to, you know, poll taxes and, uh, you know, the grandfather clauses and, and things of that nature from from the past as well. Like, it, it, even though the modern law, you know, if you're going to do that, people are going to be a lot more suspicious about your modern iteration of, of that voting restriction. So, uh, you know, it, it's fairly remarkable to see them do this. I think, you know, you've heard forever. If you've ever been on the Internet and interacted with a gun rights advocate, You've heard that gun gun laws are racist, right? That that uh, in fact uh, the argument you'll commonly hear is that all gun laws are racist. And this formulation, uh, the, the, I mean, now you're now you have New York saying this in court. That, yeah, our laws are similar to these racist laws <laughs> from the past, and it's not something I expected them to ever do. Even with Bruin, like I understand, you know, the experts kept saying, like, well, this is because of Bruin, because Bruin makes you look for historical analogs. Well, I get that, <laughs> but you don't have to cite. The racist ones, the <laughs> right. openly, extremely, explicitly racist ones. You could, like I said, they found some other things to to point to. I don't know that they're better arguments, but they at least don't have you saying, "Yeah, our laws like this racist law." So, right. uh, you know, it'll be uh, interesting but, to see how how long lived this line of argument goes in these future court cases because it's that's a tough look. Yeah, I mean, none of the, even the the left leaning experts didn't think this was going to actually catch right. on, and and be effective in in court. And uh, it, regardless of what Barrett might have written in a dissent at one point, I, I don't see the court adopting this line of reasoning anytime soon. Uh, to up, I mean, it's also just like they they want to take this thing and then apply it extremely broadly anyway. Like their lesson that we're supposed to take from these laws is that anybody the government deems dangerous for basically any reason in this case right. because they, the people passing these laws were bigoted against native americans and catholics um you know therefore the government can declare anybody uh, suspect or dangerous without them having to actually commit any sort of uh crime right, right. Uh, which is something i think we've rejected quite a long time ago in this country at least uh you know at least the explicit version of it right right um so we'll, we'll see what happens with this? We'll keep, continue to follow this case. Uh, I'm still amazed they even went this route to begin with, but I don't think it's going to make it very far on that defense. It may on other defenses, you know, as the experts talked about in the piece, this, these discretionary laws aren't necessarily a slam dunk to get tossed out, but uh, we'll continue to follow that. But in the meantime, uh, actually have one of my favorite segments coming up. We uh, have a, a member segment, so we're going to head over to that now. All right, we've got another one of my favorite segments this week, the member segment. Uh, we have Douglas Jefferson from, uh, he's actually the vice president of the National African American Gun Association, but he's also a Reload member. Welcome to the show, uh, Douglas. Thanks for having me, Stephen. How have you been? Can't complain. Uh, it's been pretty busy uh, on the side of uh, NAGA, you know, just with uh, the Supreme Court ruling, the new legislation that's gone out, just, you know, just the general uh, conditions, how things are out in the world. Uh, we've had a lot of movement uh, as far as membership and a lot of interest uh, and, you know, kind of helping us to do some some new things and uh, get us uh, focused uh uh, on where we need to be to to get that information out to folks that are interested in owning farms that never had interest before now. Yeah, and uh, we we met at uh, Shot Show. I saw you, you guys had a booth there, and 
He actually launched a new a new magazine too uh, during Correct. Shot Show this year back in in January. Uh, so you guys are Correct. doing a lot of stuff, right? Yeah, yeah. So Caliber magazine that you referred to, yeah, that was a really big accomplishment for us. Uh, we we put that together uh, rather quickly. I think from inception of when the idea came about to hey, let's do a magazine to actually getting it you know printed and 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 put out you know newsstand ready was a little bit over 90 days so we did that really really quickly but it turned out amazing um i i couldn't have asked for a, a better team that put that together and uh you know we've had really great reception from not just our members but from just anyone that we've encountered and showed that magazine to they've been really excited to see uh that so i think it's a testament to all the all the hard work uh uh, on the folks in the organization and the dedication of our members that, you know, allowed us to be in a position to do that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly an, an interesting, unique offering, something that uh, you're not, haven't really seen before in, in the gun world in terms of uh, a magazine dedicated to African-American gun ownership uh, from a, like a cultural perspective. Right. Uh, that, and I think it's uh, really fascinating. I really enjoyed the first uh, edition and, uh, how often are you guys going to put that out? Uh, so we put it out on a quarterly basis. So okay. uh, four uh, issues per year. Uh, we're about to release our third issue. Should be coming out in just a couple of weeks. So uh, and then we'll be, you know, working on finishing up that fourth issue to round out the year. Wonderful. Uh, but you mentioned, you know, so, uh, a lot of new people getting into to firearms. A lot of African Americans doing. Uh, doing the same, of course, coming becoming first time gun gun owners the last couple of years. But I want to. I'm interested in your personal story since it's the member segment. So, uh, sure. What, how did you get into firearms? Uh, so I got. I, I guess as far as gun owners, I got into to, to firearms uh, kind of late in life. Uh, you know, the traditional story here is you know you grew up you know shooting mm -hmm. with a relative or a family friend. Um, didn't have any of that. I didn't get into firearms until uh, my mid twenties. And it was funny how it happened. So at the time, uh, I was uh, working with the Georgia Department of Defense. I'm a Georgia uh, resident. So uh, lifelong, you know, Georgia native, love the state. Uh, and so in my, in my uh, position I was working in, uh, worked with a lot of National Guard and Reserve uh, unit members. So, of course, you know, it's a lot of guys there. We talk about everything, talk about sports, talk about women, talk about, you know, video games, talk about, you know, just all the typical guy stuff. And conversation comes up about guns and, you know, I'm just kind of sitting back listening and observing. And one day, one of the, the, the troops asked me, it's like, well, Hey, Doug, why don't you ever say anything when we're talking about guns? I said, well, I don't really have much to contribute because I don't really have much experience with them. And he's like, okay. It's like, well, have you, you, you live in Georgia, right? And it's like, yeah. He's like, you, you've grown up here. Yeah. And it's like, well, you, you know, you can go out and shoot a gun. It's like, yeah. It's like, so why haven't you? And I was like, I didn't have a good answer. I just, it had never really crossed my mind. So the, the very next week, you know, when I had some time off, um, after I, you know, done my laundry and done my grocery shopping or whatever, I went to the gun range, went to their safety class, uh, you know, cause I told them like, Hey, I never shot a gun before. I want to try it. Uh, you know, they got me set up with a, uh, it was a Glock 17, you know, gave me a box of rounds, gave me the gun, put me in lane, explained all the, the safety features and, and and how to basic fundamentals of marksmanship and i took my first shots and i was like oh, this, this is pretty cool so it's kind of jumped into it from there and i 
uh, kind of jumped into it with both feet because uh, my my first gun purchase after that was actually not a, a, a Glock, but it was an AR-15. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I started shooting that and, uh, you know, started taking a bunch of classes, got really hooked on it. and um, But with anything that I do, I, I like to know all the history and everything about it. So I started looking into, well, what's the history when it comes to African-Americans and guns? Because, you know, typical media representations, gun owners are, you know, typically not African-Americans and where you do have African-Americans talking about guns, it's usually negative, be it, you know, with a bad guy in the movie, the criminal, the crook, or mm. even in the news media, you know, it's usually portraying some type of negativity. Mm-hmm. So I got really drawn into the the history of how much gun ownership has been linked to African-American people being able to be fully enfranchised citizens in this country. In mm. particular, it's linked in allowing African-Americans to uh, gain and protect voting rights, which is not a story that's really spoken of uh, a lot. So that that really intrigued me um, and, you know, maybe start asking questions of my own family, which I found out, um, you know, my both my parents had grown up shooting. They never really talked about it at all when I was a kid. So I'm like, wait, you, you did this and you never said anything. And they weren't anti-gun. They're just really gun agnostic. They were like, hey, guns are a thing. Uh, they exist. Good people have them. Bad people have them. It just depends on who's using them because it's just a tool. You know, so that was my understanding of him growing up. And of course, I knew my grandfather, I knew that he owned firearms because, you know, he lived on a farm. And even now, you know, he's what, 94 this year. Wow. Um, he still sleeps the shotgun by his bed. So a uh, lifelong gun owner um, with him. And, you know, he taught my mom to shoot uh, on my dad's side. Uh, he also he learned to shoot from, uh, you know, some of his relatives, uh, grandfather and such. So, um history there, but, you know, this wasn't talked about. So now that I'm into this space and talking about farms, we have, uh, you know, a lot of interesting conversations nowadays because those kind of memories and things they never really thought about, they'll come up when I, when I have conversations about whatever I'm doing with the organization. So that's, that's been really cool. Oh, nice. Yeah. So you have a new way of, of connecting there. Uh, that, yeah, actually that story is pretty similar to, uh, to how I got into firearms. Cause I, I didn't okay. grow up shooting either. I uh, didn't shoot my first gun until after college, actually, um, when uh, it was it was an uh, office fun day where I <laughs> where uh, my first job out of out of college. So, um, yeah, it was a sort of late bloomer, too. I think a lot of people assume when you're uh, you know involved in this space uh, as, as we are, that you've just been shooting your whole life. And it's not necessarily the case. Um, right. But that's really fascinating. Obviously, uh, you know, you. Your journey into uh, gun ownership, or, or I guess down the snowball of gun ownership, uh, after the first purchase, uh, you know, involved that unique African American history of gun ownership in, in the United States, and and now, of course, you're vice president at the the largest uh, African American gun owning gun owners association in the country. Um, how did you, you know, move from that point of researching the history? Uh, that you just spoke about into, you know, political activism in, in the modern day? So uh, my involvement with uh, Naga started in 2016. So the organization was had only been around a year, it was founded in 2015, in uh, February 2015, in, in honor of Black History Month by Philip Smith, the president and founder of the organization. So I was uh, had finished up a range session at a local range that I was at. Uh, it was actually at a, a new range I had never been to before. A friend of mine had suggested that I checked out. Uh, so I went to this range, you know, 
did my, my regular shooting session I was doing at the time on the weekend. So I come out and run into a gentleman. He introduces himself and we just start to chat. And then, you know, as gun people, you know, somebody wants to go up and talk, think, okay, we're going to talk about gun stuff. And, you know, it's the South too. So it's, you know, real, real friendly environment. Uh, so he was telling me about, started telling me about his organization, uh, gave me his card, asked me to check it out. So I said, all right, I will. And I'd already started a little bit of reading about it so that, that it, it intrigued me. Uh, so I go home, check the website, liked what I saw, went to see when the next meeting was and showed up at the next meeting, which was a couple of weeks out from, from the day that I met Phil. Uh, so from that point, just started working at the, in the local chapter, uh, going to the events, um, then started helping to plan some of the activities, uh, eventually moved into running the social media, uh, for the entire organization, uh, which was only, uh, is only the one chapter when I first joined in. You know, Phil and I worked to kind of expand that and grow it out. So, uh, say probably around 20 into 2017, uh, first part of 2018 was when I moved into the position of vice president of the organization. So, I've been working with very close with Phil uh, and the rest of the team ever since uh, to kind of grow the organization, its influence, and, and uh, how on, many on the culture. How many chapters are you guys up to now? We are about 120 chapters nationwide. Uh, we're in over 30 states of the U.S., uh, about 45,000 members nationwide. Wow. Yeah. You guys have grown really fast. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in a short period of time. It's amazing. Um, and, uh, you know, this is uh, probably uh, straightforward than how you became aware of the reload. But but uh, can you give us a little bit of background on why you decided to become a member? Sure. So uh, one of the things that. Um, you know, as the vice president of the organization uh, of a gun organization, I've you know got to keep up with a lot of what's going on in the news related to firearms. And I was always looking for new places where I could get that information uh, and get really good uh, analysis of of the situations. And um, you can kind of piece it together from you know your your really super pro gun, you know, shall not be infringed, yelled from the rooftop, and then you've got the you know super anti gun, you know these things are dangerous you know, the world would be so much better and there'd be no deaths if, you know, God just got rid of, right? So you get those two and you kind of try to kind of parse what's the truth between the two of them, right? And so I found a couple of sources that were really good. One of them was open source defense. And I actually met one of the uh, the writers who he's also, he's local here in Georgia. And so him and I, we struck up a friendship and we, you know, communicate on a fairly regular basis. And uh, you know, I started asking him, like, hey, what are some of the sources he goes to and whatnot? And he happened to mention uh, the reload. He said, hey, I know this guy, Stephen. He's done a lot of writing on Second Amendment uh, issues, uh, but he has really good sober analysis of it. I think it's something right, right up your alley. You should check it out. So I said, all right, cool. So I go to check it out. I liked what I read. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. I definitely need to to, to keep my eye on this and make sure that I'm I'm getting this information on a regular because I, I don't think that there's any other place that covers uh, any, any, any gun culture, any one gun rights, any gun legislation, especially the way that you do and really bringing forth that analysis of, you know, really looking at, you know, Hey, what's the good part and what's the bad part of it? Cause I mean, I don't think you make it a secret that you are a supporter of second amendment rights, but you don't let that color your reporting. Um, I always feel like I'm getting a good, honest, uh, balanced analysis of whatever's going on. Because uh, I see you're just as quick to identify, you know, some of the the negative, you know, portions that, of, uh, you know, segments 
or ideas that come out of gun culture, which, you know, and as a gun owner, I have to be honest, you know, there, there are some negative pieces. It's just as much as you're uh, there to highlight the positives. Uh, and then the same that you do on the side of folks that are pushing, uh, you know, anti-gun legislation or anti-gun ideas. So I just really appreciate that balanced analysis, um, which can be, you know, just really on any topic, especially controversial topics in this day and age, can be really, really hard to find. Yeah. Yeah. I think you really hit the core of what, what I'm trying to do. So I'm really glad to to hear that that you feel that way about it. But yeah, we try to provide as as sober and, and uh, serious, I guess that's the tagline, right, of a, a look at, at gun politics in America and try to give people, you know, a, a realistic idea of what's going on, uh, whether it's something they like or don't like. Uh, they just try to be truthful uh, with, with folks and give the best, uh, especially when it comes to the analysis, give the best uh, view of, of how this is going to impact things. Not always right either. Um, we do, I think we have a pretty good track record, but when I'm not right, I try to point out like the Sullivan's band did not think that was going to pass right. the house. It did. Uh, I don't think it is going to pass the Senate, but we will keep on top of that one as well. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just something where I think, uh, honesty and straightforwardness is, is more valuable. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great opinion, uh, folks out there who are, are, giving valuable intake or insight into what's going on uh, by sticking to their principle, their core principles. And, and, uh, but there's a lot of people who give really bad insight uh, because they are very rigid and inflexible about even just understanding what's happening. Um, So uh, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I think, uh, you know, your group in particular uh, is one of the, key groups that's going to be influential uh, for how gun culture is, is going to be shaped over the next several decades here. I think the rise of minority gun owners and, and female gun owners and gun owners who are younger and uh, live in more suburban areas than rural areas are going to be a huge part of how guns in America shake out over the next 20, 30 years. Uh, so, you know, and you can already see it in, in the growth that you just described uh, Absolutely. of your group. And so, uh, you know, we're going to we're definitely going to keep uh, in contact with you guys and follow what you're doing and and do our best to report on it fairly uh, through the future here. But if people are interested in, in hearing more about NAGA, uh, how can they do that? Sure. So uh, you can check out our website, www.naaga.co. Uh, that's where you can join. That's where you can find out more information about, uh, you know, who we are. Uh, if you're interested, find out, you know, where the chapter closest to you is. We're also on your major social media uh, under official Naga and Naga National on Facebook, on Instagram and on YouTube. Uh, particularly on YouTube, we started a panel series where we're talking about different uh, gun rights issues uh, from the perspective uh, of the African-American experience. Uh, we've had two sessions already. The first one, uh, we were talking about uh, the phenomenon of mass shootings. And the second one we had most recently about a week and a half ago, we were talking about the impacts of the uh, Bruin decision and the new uh, bipartisan uh, gun bill that was passed uh, just a, a little bit a little bit ago, I guess about a month back, but just the day after the Bruin decision, in mm-hmm. fact. Uh, so we're really moving towards having conversations about what 
the impact of these laws, these legislation is on the African-American community, because uh, often just find that, you know, there's there's no one that's really speaking of it through that lens. So uh, we're going to be the folks that are going to have that conversation um, and, you know, whether you ultimately decide that you agree with our take or not. We just want to make sure that people have, you know, proper contextualized nuanced info to make that decision at the end of the day. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you listening who want to be a member, just like Douglas, you can head over to the reload.com and check out our membership options today. You'll get exclusive access to hundreds of pieces of, of uh, news and analysis that you can't get anywhere else. You also get this podcast a day early, a day before everyone else, and you'll have the opportunity, of course, to appear on the show if you would like. And uh, so I think it's a pretty good deal, personally. But um, Absolutely. Well worth the money. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. There's an endorsement for you. But uh, yeah, uh, we will we'll see you again next week. 